according to one Middle East think tank, because of what's happening in the region, they say that there seems to be mounting global uncertainty. But friends, here's the reason we can be glad this morning. We can rejoice, not because we know how tomorrow is going to turn out at the office or in the home or in the world, but because we have an immovable hope. So there may be global uncertainty about many things, but here is something that we can be absolutely certain of, and that changes everything. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a promise from our unchanging God. The Lord will complete His new creation work, just as we sang. And because of that hope, you and I can be bold in the way that we speak of the gospel to unbelievers and bold in the way we live and minister the gospel to one another. Jesus will build His church, and He will do it by His Spirit as we fix our eyes on Him. And this is what we'll consider this morning from our text. So please open up your Bibles and, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read... A veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now speak to our hearts and strengthen our faith so that we might stand firm in the gospel of our Savior. Help us understand, O Lord, what a great hope we have and cause us not to lose heart but to be faithful in the work that you have called us to in this body. Renew our minds as we hear these glorious words by faith and make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Cristiano Ronaldo, the Portuguese footballer, has many fans all over the world. But no one as dedicated as one Iranian-Danish man named Shanta. Ronaldo. He's so bold that he calls himself Ronaldo. Shanta imitates his idol in every way. He has the same fashion sense, 
Uh, he tries to wear similar clothes, gets the same haircut, and has even been accused of getting several surgeries to look like him. This man is obsessed with Ronaldo, and he has even tried to pursue uh, a career in football. Now, there's a reason why Shanta adores Ronaldo, and he's very bold. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed of it. Shanta says, the reason I wanted to be like Ronaldo is because he is rich and famous, and he's living the life. He's not just my passion, but he motivates me. People tell me, be yourself, Shanta, but I cannot be myself more than I am now. Now, irrespective of what you might think of this case of adulation, it's not uncommon that fans love to gaze upon the glory of movie stars and musicians and sportsmen, and in doing so, become like them. We become like what we worship. Now, the Bible tells us that the glory of this world and the wisdom of this age is passing away. They are doomed to perish. The psalmist writes, Man in his pomp, that is his splendor, his glory, will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. One day, age, disease, and death will extinguish everyone's earthly glory. But that's not what's tragic. The real tragedy of mankind's existence is that we are blind to the eternal glory of God, the only glory that is worthy of worship and the only glory that can save us from perishing. And Paul, in this letter, tells us that that glory can only be seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, at Corinth, there were certain Jewish men, false apostles, who were glorying in all the wrong things. They gloried in outward appearances, all those things that Corinthian society loved, Power, status, fine speech, self-promotion. But they were also teaching a false gospel by glorying in the old covenant. They believed in the continuing ministry of the law and were probably insisting that in addition to following Jesus, it was necessary for the Corinthians to observe the law of Moses. Not only were they leading the members astray, but they were also attacking Paul's apostolic ministry and his authority. And so the true apostolic gospel was under attack at Corinth. And the spiritual lives of the Corinthians were in great danger. And in this chapter, Paul defends his ministry by grounding it in the glory of what Christ had accomplished in salvation history. You see, Paul was a minister of the new covenant and not of the old. Because when Jesus accomplished his saving work, he inaugurated the new covenant, the very covenant that the Old Testament looked forward to. The very fact that the Holy Spirit was working in the hearts of the Corinthians, causing them to repent, causing them to know comfort in affliction, was proof that the new covenant was in effect. God had given them new hearts, and He had put His Spirit within them, and He was empowering them to trust and obey the Word of Christ. And so Paul, in this chapter, essentially argues that because of what Jesus had accomplished, because he had inaugurated the new covenant, his apostolic ministry, the ministry of the Spirit, at work in the lives of these Christians through his word, his ministry was far superior to theirs. Now, this did not mean that the old covenant did not have glory. It did. After all, it was God who gave the law. 
Now, what Paul argues is that the new covenant has greater glory because of what Christ accomplished. The old covenant was a temporary administration that served its purpose, but was now no longer in effect. The purpose of the law was not to save, but to condemn lawbreakers. It was a ministry of death and not a ministry of life. It was a ministry of condemnation and not one of righteousness like the ministry of the new covenant, where those who put their trust in Christ alone are saved by Jesus' righteousness that gets credited to their account by faith. Now to explain this further, Paul goes all the way back to Exodus 34. He goes back to the Old Covenant, to Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35, and he uses the fading glory of Moses' face as a symbol of the fading glory of the Old Covenant. And he says that the fading brightness of Moses' face was meant to teach us that the economy of the Old Covenant was temporary. It was fading away. But it was also a sign given to us by God in His Word to point us to something more permanent and eternal in the future. It was pointing us to greater glory, the greater and permanent glory of the New Covenant. Now, in verses 12 to 18, our text for this morning, Paul continues to expound on the glory of the New Covenant. And the reason he does this is because he wants the Corinthians to see that what these Judaizers were, were teaching was false and futile. Christian hope is grounded in the gospel and not in the Old Covenant law. It is grounded in the gospel and not in Old Covenant law. And those who proclaim this gospel are hope-filled and bold. And so here's the first lesson we can learn from this passage. Number one... Gospel ministers are hope-filled and bold. And when I say gospel ministers, I, I don't just mean pastors or those who are in some kind of full-time ministry. I'm speaking of all of you, members of a local church. God has called each one of us to speak His truth in love. We are called to be servants or ministers of the gospel. And in doing so, we are called to make disciples of all nations and, and build up His church. So point number one, gospel ministers are hope-filled and bold. Look at verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Paul here is contrasting the ministry of Christ's true apostles with the ministry of these false apostles. And he says, since we have hope, we are not just bold, we are very bold. This hope produces boldness. It makes us bold. Now, what hope is he talking about? Well, look at the previous verse, verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Beloved, hope is a future-looking faith. And the hope that Paul is referring to is the permanent glory of the new covenant. Friends, as Christians, you have entered into that glory when you believed. And the presence of the indwelling spirit is the guarantee of much more to come. The new creation that begins with the new heart will lead to new resurrection bodies and a new earth in the future. See, our Heavenly Father, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 
doesn't just comfort us today. No, he has promised us eternal comfort and everlasting joy. We have these blessings because of the new covenant. Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of a great harvest, and He is now leading many sons in triumphal procession to heavenly glory. Now later in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul will argue that our sufferings in this age are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Beloved, our hope is the hope of a greater and permanent glory. Since we have such a hope, a hope like this, we are very bold. Now the boldness that Paul is referring to is the openness or the plainness of his speech. He's not afraid to speak the truths of the gospel because of such a great hope. You know, when I was studying this passage, I, I thought of Pastor Alex. You know, when Alex is being bold, uh, he will say, Brother, let me be frank with you. Let me give it to you straight. That's what Paul is saying here. Because of the glory of the gospel, because of such a hope, so great a hope, so sure a hope, Paul is saying, we can be very frank with you. We'll tell it to you straight. Don't go back to the law. Don't put yourself under a curse. Don't give yourself to the ministry of death, but trust in Christ alone. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God, and it is His Spirit who works in us. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Beloved, because you have such a hope, you can be very bold. Don't be hesitant to tell people that if they trust in themselves, that if they think that they can do enough good works to get right with God, don't be hesitant to tell them that they are wrong. Be plain in telling them that. Be bold in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be bold to call them to repentance and faith in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, during times of fellowship, remind one another of this hope. Remind yourselves of this hope. And pray that the Holy Spirit will make you bold to speak the word without fear. Study the scriptures together. Make it a point after the service, to talk about the word that was preached. If you're not able to do that, do it later this evening or do it during the week. How can you be grounded in hope if you don't know the hope to which you have been called? Beloved, don't be hesitant. Be courageous and clear as you speak the word of Christ even to one another. Remember that Jesus is building his church. He is sanctifying his bride through his spirit as you obediently address one another's sins. As you obediently encourage one another in your afflictions. As you obediently exhort one another towards greater Christ-likeness. If you're a member of this church, then rem remember that every Sunday, as you sit under the preaching of God's Word, you are being equipped for the work of glorious New Covenant ministry. Remember the hope and the glory of new covenant ministry. You see, according to Paul, if the new covenant has greater glory, then ministers of the new covenant have 
greater boldness. See, Paul wants us to understand that it is the very nature, there's something about the new covenant that produces this boldness. And so he compares his boldness to that of Moses, who represents the old covenant. Moses is a minister of the old covenant, and so he compares their boldnesses. And he says, since we have such a hope, since the new covenant is permanent, since it is everlasting, since the gospel is an eternal gospel, we are very bold, not like Moses. Did you see that in the text? Not like Moses, verse 13, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, if 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11, the previous verses, if that was a commentary on Exodus 34, 29 to 30, then these verses, verses 12 to 18, they're a commentary on Exodus 34, 31 to 35. So if you'd like to look at both of those, just turn to Exodus 34. Just keep one finger there and one finger on 2 Corinthians 3. Now in Exodus 34, we are told the story of how Moses went up to Mount Sinai to intercede for the people of Israel after the golden calf incident. And when Moses came down the mountain holding two new tablets of stone, having renewed the covenant that Israel had broken, because he had been in God's presence, talking to God, the text tells us that the skin of his face shone. It was radiant. And the Israelites were initially afraid to look at him, to fix their gaze on him. But Moses called the people to himself, and then they saw him, and he instructed them in all the commands that the Lord had given him. Now, after he had finished speaking to them, Moses did something strange. He put a veil on his face. Now, Moses had set up a, a tent of meeting with God outside the camp. And this was not the tabernacle, it was a different tent. But here, God's visible glory would descend on that place. A pillar of cloud would stand at the entrance and Moses would go in and he would talk to God. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove that veil. Then he would come out and tell the people of Israel what he was commanded. And during that time of teaching, the people of Israel would see the shining face of Moses. And then after he was done teaching, he would once again cover his face with that same veil. Now, the passage in Exodus does not tell us why Moses did that. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us why in verse 13. It was because he was not bold. That's why he put a veil on his face. Why did he do that? Verse 13, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to, the end, to an end. You see, the radiance on Moses' face was fading. It was fading. Every time he went into the tent, he would come out sort of recharged with a radiant face, but it didn't last. The glory of his face was fading. It was being brought to an end. Now, we've already seen how Paul uses the, the fading glory of Moses' face as a symbol of the glory of the old covenant. The glory of the old covenant was fading, and Moses knew that. That's why he covered his face so that the Israelites would not be able to see it fading. Now, the point that Paul is trying to make is this. 
Moses was not bold. You remember, this was Moses' problem from the beginning. He says, oh, I'm not eloquent, I'm slow of speech, send somebody else God. And he had to send Aaron to be his mouthpiece throughout his ministry. Yet Paul here is talking about this one particular incident. Moses was not bold in this case because he knew he was a minister of a fading covenant. See, Moses knew that someone greater and more glorious than him would come. Someone who would do what the law could not do. And he said in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Isn't that amazing? The greatest prophet in the Old Testament knew that his ministry was temporary. Moses was speaking of Jesus. The New Testament quotes Deuteronomy 18.15 twice. In the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 22, chapter 7, verse 37, to tell us that Moses spoke about Jesus in that verse. Jesus himself said in John 5, 46, that Moses wrote about him. Now remember that Moses was regularly instructing the people of Israel in the glory of God's word. And he put a veil so that the Israelites might not see the fading glory of the law. But the problem was not the fading glory of the law. The problem was the hardness of their hearts. That's the logic of the text. Moses did this so that they might not gaze at the outcome. That was Moses' purpose for them. But look at verse 14. But their minds were hardened. They did not love God's word or his purposes. They were enslaved to their sin. They were uncircumcised in heart. And Paul says that remains true even today. But that will only change when you embrace the glory of the apostolic gospel. You see, that's why this argument matters. Because that's what was being challenged. That will only change when you embrace the glory of the apostolic gospel. Look at verses 14 to 15. For to this day, notice the transition from what was happening then with Israel under the old covenant to Paul's day. For to this day, when they, that's the Jews, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, notice his boldness here. Whenever Moses is read, he means the law. Moses' writings, whenever they are read in synagogues, a veil lies over their hearts. The true intent of the law, the true purpose of the law, the true meaning of the old covenant, nothing of that gets through. Their minds are hardened. A veil lies over their hearts. You see, here's what Paul is doing. Just like he did in verses 7 to 11, where he used the fading glory of Moses' face as a symbol of the fading glory of the Old Covenant. Here, he takes Moses' veil and he uses it as a symbol of the spiritual blindness of the Israelites who are currently unable to see and understand what that fading glory pointed to. It pointed to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It pointed to the permanent glory of the new covenant. 
And the reason Paul speaks in this way is because he wants the Corinthians and the false teachers to know that it is only through the Christ who I preach. Only through the preaching of the apostolic gospel, this veil of spiritual blindness can be taken away through my ministry, not yours. Look at the next verse, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, when Moses used to go into the tent, if you remember, and speak to Yahweh, he would remove his veil. And Paul uses that same image to describe the conversion experience of a believer. When one turns to the Lord, namely the Lord Jesus, the veil, that spiritual blindness, is removed by His grace and power. Beloved, this is the greater glory of the new covenant that Paul has been speaking of in this chapter. That when sinners hear the gospel of Christ and Him crucified, that veil is removed. Well, how is it removed? Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. See, when Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit, he's not saying that the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same person. He's not saying that. No, he's saying, now the Lord of whom I am speaking of is the Holy Spirit. Turning to the Lord Jesus involves turning to Him through the Holy Spirit, working in us as we hear the word of the gospel. And where the Spirit of the Lord Jesus is, there is freedom. Friends, it is the Holy Spirit who removes the veil of unbelief. It is the Holy Spirit who removes the hardened heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. It is the Holy Spirit who heals our spiritual blindness so that we can see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This, beloved, is the glory of new covenant ministry. Let that be an encouragement to you in your evangelism. We can be bold in proclaiming this gospel because God, the Holy Spirit, works in great power to do what no earthly power can. He opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. See, this is why we sing, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys, then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. You see, blindness in the scriptures is often used as a metaphor to describe the spiritual state of all sinners. Outside of Christ, every human being is veiled. They are in the dark, as it were, unable to, to see God's truth. Unbelievers in the scriptures are described as those who have no eyes to see and know God in His splendor, no ears to hear or understand His word, no taste to relish His joys, and no ability or desire to seek or follow Him. Sin blinds us to the truth of God in such a way that we refuse to believe God's truth. It doesn't matter how eloquently you might describe the colors of a rainbow or the intricate design of a snowflake. It makes no difference to a blind man. In the same way, those who are spiritually blind cannot see the glory of God. Beloved, this is the Lord's own description of the rebellious. Listen to what he says to Ezekiel. Son of man, 
You dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not. Who have ears to hear but hear not. Why? For they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel 12.2 Their minds are hardened. So if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you refuse to believe that you are a sinner who stands condemned under the law, if you refuse to believe that God himself has come in the flesh, in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, if you refuse to believe that the only way you can be saved from God's judgment and his eternal wrath is to repent of your sins and to put your trust in him, if you cannot see that Christ died for sinners and rose from the dead so that those who trust in him can have eternal life, even now, as you're, as you're hearing my voice, and instead of being moved to cry out to Jesus for mercy, if all of this just sounds irrelevant and unnecessary, then it's because you are veiled. You're spiritually blind. You cannot see what God is calling you to see. Only through Christ is that veil taken away. So don't turn away from Him. Look to the glory of the cross. See what Christ has done for sinners. See how He has borne the full punishment of God's law in His death. See how He has purchased new life for sinners in His resurrection from the dead. Look upon the glory of what He has done and call on Him to save you. This is the one who can set you free from your bondage to sin. This is the one who can remove that veil. This is the one who can forgive you of all your sins and give you unshakable hope. He sets you free to see true glory. And he sets you free to boldly proclaim a message of glory that does not perish or fade. You see, these false apostles were trying to get the Christians at Corinth to put themselves under the law of Moses. And Paul says, you cannot even understand what the old covenant is all about apart from Christ. Apart from the Spirit removing that veil. See, Paul says this. He says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the hearts of the Jews. Beloved, there are roughly 15 million Jews in the world. At least 15 million who self-identify themselves as Jewish. And every one of them will perish if that veil is not removed. And that veil, according to Paul, according to the Holy Spirit, can only be removed through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus said this to the Jews when he was on earth. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, those scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 5, 39 to 40. Friends, you can read the Old Testament scriptures week after week and still go to hell. Paul himself knew this, didn't he? He was a Pharisee, 
faithfully attending the synagogue. He heard Moses read week after week without realizing that he was being accused and condemned by the very law he was putting his hope in. There was a time when Paul was hardened and blind instead of being hope-filled and bold. A veil was over his own heart until one day he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus, and his eyes were opened to see that all of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, pointed to Jesus Christ. And when Paul was called to testify in Acts 26, 22 to 23, this is what he said. Paul said, I am saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That's all that I'm saying. There's nothing new. That the Christ must, must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he, that is Christ, would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He would proclaim light. How is Jesus proclaiming light? He's doing it through the apostolic preaching of the cross. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Look at the text carefully. You see, in saying that apart from Christ removing the veil... So that a person can understand how the glory of the old covenant was fading and pointing to the greater glory of Christ in the new covenant. In saying that, Paul is also indirectly saying that these false apostles were still veiled. They don't get it. Anyone who failed to see and acknowledge that the greater glory of the new covenant was manifest in Paul's ministry was pretty much in the same hardened state as those Israelites during Moses' day, and every Israelite in Paul's day. They're not free. They're still in bondage to the law. Remember what these false apostles were enamored by? <clears throat> the glory of outward appearances, the glory of the Sinai covenant without understanding its purpose in redemptive history. But they looked at Paul's ministry, so wordy, Paul's full of words, so wordy, and marked by affliction. And they wondered, what, what's, he, what's he so bold about? They didn't get it. Because it wasn't the kind of glory they were chasing after. Brothers and sisters, sometimes I wonder whether in some subtle way we too can fall into this wrong-headed kind of thinking. Do you know when it happens? When we start to evaluate various ministries based on how loud or prominent and visible and attention-grabbing they are. Oh, you're a preacher. Oh, brother, how glorious is your gospel ministry. Yes, new covenant glory. And uh, I, I don't know what that guy's doing over there. Oh, he's, he's, he's serving people by, um, by seating them. He is uh, welcoming them. That's, that's good. Good for you. Being involved in all that team effort. We're not excited about those kinds of ministries, are we? Beloved, guard your hearts. Because the temptation to pursue worldly glory is not too far from us. Flee that sort of worldly thinking and think Christianly. Remember that you are members of the body of Christ and you are all servants of the new covenant. All your ministries are glorious. 
empowered by the same spirit of glory. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7. Now, you and I can put off that sort of worldly thinking. We can flee the pursuit of worldly glory and change. But how do we do it? Not by trying to keep the law of Moses, but by constantly looking to the glory that saved us. And that brings us to our second point. Here's the second lesson we can learn from this passage. Gospel ministers are changed by the same glory that we proclaim. We are changed by the same glory that we proclaim. We're not changed by pursuing a righteousness that comes from keeping the old covenant law. We are changed, rather, into ever-increasing Christ-likeness by trusting in the one who has eternal glory. Look at verse 18. And we all, so Paul now includes the Corinthian Christians with the apostles, we all with unveiled face. We are bold-faced, so to speak. The veil has been removed. Brothers and sisters, this alone is cause for great rejoicing. Praise God for His glorious work. Because of what Christ has done, because of the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again, we can now do what? Look at the text. Beholding the glory of the Lord. We can look upon the glory of the Lord. And where do we see that glory? We'll look down to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. We see it in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's Hebrews 1.3. And where do we see the glory of God? Where do we behold His glory? Do we have to look around for Moses' tent? No, we behold it in His Word. That's where we behold the glory. As the risen and glorified Lord Jesus speaks to us from heaven through His Spirit-inspired Word. Why do I say that? That we behold it in His Word. Well, biblically, because Moses was unveiled in the tent and he was hearing God speak to him. And contextually... Because Paul here is talking about the word of the gospel. And furthermore, when you get to chapter 4, verse 6, look at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says that this glory is given to us, how? In knowledge. In knowledge. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, now when Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is certainly freedom from the letter of the law that kills. Certainly freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom to walk according to the Spirit and so fulfill the law from the heart as we trust and obey the Word of Christ. And Paul talks about all these things in in his other letters. But most importantly, in this context, is freedom from that veil. 
freedom from that veil. Our minds are free to understand God's word. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Brothers and sisters, behold the glory of what Christ has done. Your eyes have been opened to understand His Word. You can read the Old Testament with Christian eyes. You can spiritually comprehend the truths of your Bibles. This is a precious gift that you have been given. Don't squander your Bible reading time. This is why you have been set free. Set free to engage the Scriptures, to study God's Word. You have the freedom to now behold God's glory. And what happens as we behold the glory of the Lord in the Scriptures? Well, look at the text. As we behold His glory, we are being transformed. The word is metamorpho meta. This is a, a, a metamorphosis taking place. We are being changed. Notice that passive verb. God is doing this. We are being changed. Not outwardly, but inwardly. This is a supernatural work of God. Our inner self is being renewed. Well, what are we being changed or transformed into? We are being transformed, look at the text, into the same image. Now, what image is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. You see, God reveals His glory to us in a human face, in the face of the God-man, Jesus Christ. See, this is what unbelievers are prevented from seeing. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the image we're being transformed into. Friends, as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, we are being transformed into His likeness. That's the process. And notice how this happens. According to the text, it happens from one degree of glory to another. Ever-increasing glory. Because we are not looking at something that is fading. We're gazing at eternal, everlasting glory. Beloved, those who give themselves to seeing Christ in all of the scriptures, those who meditate on His greatness and His humility and His beauty and His wisdom and His power and His love and His compassion and His grace and His obedience, and His sacrifice, and His suffering, and His resurrection, and His ascension, 
and His glory and His patience and His goodness and His sovereignty and His self-sufficiency and His meekness and His majesty. As you behold His glory, as you study Christ, and you are swept up in worship, as you behold His glory, His Spirit will change the deepest desires of your heart. And you can put off all that is earthly and sinful, and you are free to follow Him and obey Him and please Him. How does this all happen? Look at the verse. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The same Spirit who unveils your hearts, transforms you into the likeness of your Savior. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Friends, this is the doctrine of progressive sanctification. This is how we grow in holiness, in ever-increasing Christ-likeness. So if you find yourself not growing, perhaps you're here and you've been a Christian for a long, long time, and you realize, I'm not growing. From one degree of glory to another. If you find yourself not growing from one degree of glory to another, let me suggest that you consider this. Have you been beholding the wrong glory? The glory of earthly things? Friend, perhaps you've been amazed in awe of all the wrong kinds of glory. The kinds of glory that this world chases after. Those things are powerless to transform you. Perhaps that's why you're stuck in your old ways. Brothers and sisters, when we care for one another, and ask one another how we're doing spiritually, we ought to be deeply concerned about this kind of heart change, this kind of transformation. Are you being transformed by the glory of the Lord? Is the Spirit producing the fruit of self-control and patience and love and faithfulness in your life? Is this transformation significant? Is it substantial? Is it ever increasing as the years go by from one degree of glory to another. Not perfection, but ever increasing Christ-likeness. You know, one day when the Lord Jesus returns, we will be glorified. This is our destiny. Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the plan. This is the process. This is the process. And if you haven't been beholding His glory, brothers and sisters, repent. Stop chasing earthly glory. Behold His glory and be transformed and grow in Christ-likeness. Help one another do that. The image of God that was marred because of Adam's sin will be renewed and restored by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 45, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. Brothers, when the gospel transforms us, we are made 
less like ourselves and more like Jesus. We are made less like ourselves and more like Jesus. Today, we behold His glory in His Word through the Spirit, and one day we will see Him face to face. The Apostle John tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Beloved, isn't it wonderful that we have so many precious promises to encourage us in our sanctification? So help one another pursue the true glory of God in the Scriptures. Spend time beholding His glory. Don't waste time pursuing the glory of lesser things. So brothers and sisters, are your respective ministries in the congregation, your conversations, your discipleship meetings, are they all aimed towards such transformation. This is the glory of New Covenant ministry that we have been entrusted with. God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Our Christian growth does not come by trying to obey the old covenant law. It does not come by trying to construct for ourselves a certain kind of of persona, a certain image that the world can be impressed with or by adopting values that our respective cultures would find respectable. No, it comes by beholding the glory of the Lord in His Word with an unveiled face. We are being changed by the same glory that we proclaim. So look to Jesus. Behold His glory and be be bold ministers of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise for your grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes to see his glory. And we pray, O Lord, that you would make it sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. We pray that we would be bold to proclaim your word, both in this congregation and to those who do not believe. O Lord, we cannot do this without the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, O Lord, that as we gaze upon the glory of Christ's finished work, your Spirit would transform us, that your Spirit would empower us, your Spirit would make us sufficient to do the work that you have called us to do. Help us be dependent on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.